Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by Graham Bibby, the former CIO of Mutual Trust and now an independent consultant. What got you into finance? Yeah, um, what got me into finance originally was you know, my dad worked for ANZ Bank in New Zealand and I had a couple of uncles who were dentists and they were always talking about investments. I started off wanting to be an engineer because the concept of inventing things was attractive, but always found myself involved in some way or another with you know signing up for IPOs that my dad was doing and talking about things that were happening with companies around the kitchen table. So I was always interested because of that and um, then found myself during university investing in mining companies and uh, and options and even when I was an engineer trading options so that was something I did very early on and then I thought well I'm really interested in this I'm reading the financial review unlike a lot of other engineers so why not do it properly and so I did a MBA and did every investment subject I possibly could and um, then that helped me to transition so I moved from engineering into superannuation in the time both from the BHP environment from um, Steelworks to um, DHP Super. So that got me the first start into investments. And I've, I've just always been interested and in, in passionate about uncovering stones and finding out what really works because investments are really complicated. The world's really complicated. And um, often there's a lot of simplifications that uh, get done to explain things, but under underneath it's really complicated. And you can get an edge in finding good investments through just doing better research than other people. One of the things I've always learned with uh, finance is around some sort of baptism of fire when, when you've uh, something just hasn't gone well. Uh, what have your learnings been over the last, you know, the 25 years that you've been in this uh, market in terms of what, what you should do better? How should you get better insights? How to address some of the blind spots that you have? Yeah, well, I guess in every market cycle that I've been through, everyone seems to focus on the most recent past shock that happened as being the the analog for how to deal with the current one. So, you know, the you know, the tech wreck in 2000 was one of those, and the environment, you know, changed quite a bit from the first central bank interventions into the market with Greenspan starting to cut rates from where they're at very high single digits right the way down and got to zero. So that was the first part of, well, what's changing here? Something's really different. And then in the GFC, well, it's a financial crisis. It's not quite a sector-specific crisis. It's pervasive in everything. The pandemic was a crisis that was just a sudden stop of economies that we haven't really had a, you know, an analogue for that. And we haven't had the speed of that before. So I think where the problems have been have been where it's it's just trying to simplify too much and you don't always have all the answers. So you know, don't think that you can get all the answers and you know, be able to play it quite as easily. When you talk about simplifying it too much, are we actually almost overcomplicating the way that we approach institutional style management today? If you think about where you first learned about finance, markets, putting together a portfolio in quotations, 
what what changes as you think about it from just an individual investor or a high net worth investor versus an institutional style approach to portfolio construction? And the most simple way of looking at an investment is you know, what is its price, what is its you know, characteristics and volume. You know, I started being a chartist, so you know, technical analysis to try and explain you know what happened in the 1987 crash, and and then look forward through the mid 90s and you know, later periods to sort of try and get some sort of understanding as to what things happened. And that's one way to simplify it right down. You can over overcomplicate it. And the danger is complicating it to an extent where you think that you've modeled the answer out to know better. Whereas in reality, things are incredibly uncertain and you know, the world's a complex adapt adaptive system and you know, behavioral factors take a big part in you know, what's happening in the world. So you know, the issue is you can overcomplicate it, but there's some sort of good balance of getting some simplifying drivers and, you know, what are the common factors? But even then, you're still going to do a little bit more work than most people will because markets tend to run on narratives. And so they're way oversimplified. That's not always the reason in the commentary why the market has moved. And it's something beyond that. So how do you approach that? I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges is as you think about the import of, of narratives driving markets and then typical portfolio managers are trying to model markets, they're trying to create assumptions around the way a market will behave. You know, how do you take a narrative, for example, and try and understand it through a model you know, or, or vice versa? You know, what, what does that process look like? Well, I think you can try and break it down into component parts and so what's really driving things. So, you know, the the big thing at the moment, one of the big things is the ARC fund, Kathy Wood's thematic fund. And thematic investments is, is a great way to play very long-term secular trends. And then cryptocurrencies, you know, this new investment, or is it an investment or is it money? That's just totally different. And there's a convergence of things in both of those, which is technology. There are trends that cross from one area to the other. You've got a convergence of you know, network effects and businesses. You've got a convergence of the application of technology from old industries to new industries. You've got the you know, social change of younger generation wanting some form of new money and a shift to the left and demographics. So you've got these trends that are coming together, but I think you can compartmentalize them down and, and look at the, the key factors that are driving it. You could think of it in the way of um, you know, investments have factors and you know, so do market narratives. So what are the things that are driving the market narratives? but then break it down into a framework. So I don't tend to get too taken up in what the narrative actually is, but I'll break it down into a framework of the underlying environment. You know, what's the economic environment, policy environment, inflation environment, that sets the background and the, and the backdrop. And then what is the market telling you? So, you know, back to that charting background that I had, you know, price, volume and volatility basically confirm what's happening. So they'll confirm that background environment and they'll confirm which sectors and, um, and factors are actually working. So I break it down into a framework to look at you know, what's actually driving the markets. Would, would it be fair to say that's the same way that you approach portfolio construction, almost a modular approach to risk? Yeah, it is. And, and I think there's been modules of uh, portfolio construction that have been you know, missing for a few decades. And you know, there's the opportunity, I think, going forward as we've got some of these you know, macro and secular trends converging. So you know, inflation is a big concern at the moment, but is it really going to be the inflation that we think it is? The short-term effects are pretty well known, and I'd, I'd tend to concur with 
you know, the Fed officials who are saying that there's a transient aspect to inflation that's just a rebound from the pandemic. The real crucial question, is there pervasive inflation coming after this? And I think you can look at some of the trends and you can say, yes, there is in some areas, like in new technology required for decarbonisation, going to be demand for copper, there's a lack of supply of copper. You need massive amounts of that, not only for electric vehicles, but charging networks, for smart infrastructure, for transmission of power. And that's a massive mega trend that will affect copper. So you need to think about that part of the resource markets in a different way. And um, some resources you know, will gather steam on the back of that, but not necessarily everything. Because over the very long term, commodities as an asset class, just on a pure price basis, hasn't performed. It's declined with the declining cost of production. So you don't want to necessarily be in it just for that reason. But it plays a part now in portfolio construction, I believe, because there's some secular trends underneath that are influencing some commodity prices. We definitely have seen a turnaround in commodity prices in the last, well, 18 months, really post-COVID. It's, it is fascinating as to why it's now that suddenly commodities are, are exciting again. Is it just because of the technological change that's going to drive this and particularly the, the green revolution around renewable energy, new types of cars, uh, new approaches to, to power systems that, go, that are really driving the, the underlying growth in, in commodities? I think that's definitely there and that's going to be a multi-decade trend. But the other aspect is supply. So there's been a, a lack of investment and capital investment into resources, particularly copper, you know, oil and gas is just going to collapse and has collapsed in terms of capital investment, but it's still an important transition fuel, particularly gas. So you know, looking at industries that have a lack of capital investment, supply is constrained, but demand is still strong or growing then that convergence of supply-demand factors in the short term will mean that there will be a price response. So the, if there is a demand response over time and it's balanced with new supply, then you get some sort of reversion. But in the short term, because of lack of capital investment, lack of supply, growing demand, you're going to get some price effects. That by itself is just the beta effect. And there's plenty of alpha opportunities as well in, in terms of active resource strategies around that as well. You touch on the alpha uh, strategies within within a fund. I'm really curious to get your feel. Over the last few years, there was this real push towards passive and, and very cheap implementation. Are we sort of past that that moment now where people are really much more starting to think about being active given the the valuations that they're seeing in equities more broadly, likewise in bonds, that now is the time to be even more active than usual. And maybe active is about being more specific on the types of themes that they're approaching and, and implementing in their portfolio. Or is it just around being very much of a bottom-up style investor and being super active in the actual companies that they want to own? Yeah, and what's happened is a massive change in market structure. So you've had that shift to passive, as you mentioned, you know, the growth of passive ETFs, passive funds, and the preference of many younger people just to be happy backing the market broadly. That's meant that active management in the traditional sense has suffered. You know, those who are left have to compete a lot harder. They might be doing the good bottom-up work, but it's not necessarily being reflected in prices because there's fewer active investors to reflect that. Passive means that actually markets become more predictable because you have flows that go in and out of sectors, themes, styles, and um, you, know, you can play that. So there's active strategies, but they've just shifted. Bottom-up still very important, 
but you've got to have the combination of bottom-up and the thematic support as well. And um, in the certain environments, you'll get certain sectors running, certain themes running. And so, you know, go with the tide when that active management is put on and uh, try not to fight it too much. As I think about your previous role in, in effectively a, a family office, is that fair to say? Yeah, multi-family office with many, many clients, yeah. So as you think about that as a, a backdrop in terms of how they build their portfolios, that's typically very different to a personal you know, who's created their own little portfolio or a traditional super fund that creates a very much institutionalized portfolio. What do you say is different about your previous role and what you're seeing more broadly across just a typical mom and dad style investor versus a super fund? Well, I think there's a real niche for family offices and um, high net worth investors where they're less constrained. You know, they don't have a credential regulator overseeing them. They've just got asset, the securities regulator. They've got their particular background of their family, which might be in creating wealth through an individual enterprise or a pretty focused investment. And then you know, further generations take it forward with you know, either maintaining that wealth at a conservative level, or they might want to you know, pivot to other sectors and um, and grow the wealth further. So it's quite different. I think the level of investment is allowing more niche opportunities to be pursued by high net worths and family offices. So that means being able to invest in, in things that super funds would pass by. So things like suburban office buildings that are smaller, things like healthcare in a smaller sort of size. Some of the themes where they're capacity constrained and they're very, very small and niche, and sometimes they're very local as well. So there's a different sense of looking at investments, really wanting to understand the investment by seeing it, touching it, meeting the manager. So it's quite quite different, whereas large funds, they do have to look at bigger opportunities and where they can deploy billions of, of capital rather than tens of millions. That's a really hard process for super funds to actually work out where do they want to allocate capital because if every single time that they're allocating capital they need to do it in multiple billions of dollars to be efficient then is that really the best is that really in the best interests of the underlying members well it's not if a whole lot of mid-sized super funds go away and they're able to pursue opportunities that are often better returning than the very large ones. And there are benefits to having a large size and strategies that leverage that size, but not everything. So I think it's a mixed bag. You know, larger funds have the infrastructure, they have the people to be able to pursue many different things. Small funds have to really pick their niches and um, decide what's good for them and what's good for their members. So things that, you know, it might be themes that actually align to what their members' industry or beliefs are. I guess the other challenge is that for the members, the members are seen to be a homogenous group that sit within a balance fund, for example, as opposed to some of these smaller multifamily offers where it's much more targeted alongside their existing assets and that the portfolio that they hold is in combination with their existing assets. And most super funds don't have that visibility of what the actual members hold, their current financial situation or any other liabilities that they may have. Yeah, well, for a, um, a family, it's, you know, it's taking a total portfolio approach to a total family approach, you know, total family assets. And that includes operating businesses, that includes their properties, that includes, might include artwork and other things like that. 
So it's really a total family approach to things. And often you'll have, as you do within a super fund, you'll have different members, you'll have different family members. So, you know, each of those have different objectives. You know, some of the younger generation may want to pursue things that are more or less aggressive, aggressive than the parents and might have more of a uh, focus on ESG matters and sustainability and impact. So you know, we've found that that's accelerated over the last few years to get more prominent in um, families thinking. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you around family offices as well is how their portfolio construction changes. You know, what's what's unique? What can you share from your experience in working in a, in a family office style uh, arrangement that is useful to, to investors? Well, one of the things is that every portfolio can be modeled differently, optimized differently. And there's you know, a lot of issues with current modeling techniques, but still it's a starting point. You know, every family can be optimized for you know, their different objectives, what asset classes they prefer and, uh, and what their preferences are. So that's one of the aspects. They're often more willing to take risk. Some groups are. And so there's more appetite for, for risk-taking, you know, given that that's been often part of the family's wealth generation anyway, is to be entrepreneurial and, and to take risk. So those are probably the two main aspects. And then then finally, there's the network effect as well. You've got the network effect and, and things like technologies, but in many families, you know, they have a network of peers of other families, you know, they can be local and global networks. And, um, you know, they get insights into things that they're involved in through their networks that you know, many people wouldn't often get access to by themselves unless they were on a few boards and uh, organizations themselves. It's interesting you, you talk about their willingness to take risk. And that's really almost quite distinct from the traditional mean variance style framework that we are taught in finance and what's actually most institutional investors really use as their framework. And they think about it ultimately almost in placing bets on particular types of investments. So how do you then compartmentalize that sort of risk-taking almost in terms of particular businesses within this broader framework of, of mean variance? Well, one, one aspect is to break it down into buckets of needs. So it can be, you know, there's a lot of risk being taken in the operating business and, and that's a separate thing that you don't model at all necessarily, but you consider in, in terms of the overall portfolio that the client has. Then it's looking at what do you want to achieve in terms of capital spending? So it might be that they need to reinvest in the business or they need to allow for education and other things for future generations. So they put aside money for those sort of things and align a portfolio to be able to deliver those. And, and they can be separate pools of capital altogether. And then look for what the overall long-term objective is. If it's to grow the wealth in a, um, after inflation, keep the real growth going, then it's looking for investments that achieve that. I mean, variance will give you some of the answers, but it doesn't recognize periods of shocks. All of these families have you know, lived through many different market cycles themselves and business cycles in particular. So they know that those shocks happen and they're much more willing to take tactical positions because they're aware of those business cycles. So that's something that's quite different in the family as well. And then it's then how do they play that through in terms of individual opportunities? Well, they're much more willing to take risk on some things and they'll put aside some risk to take at quite an aggressive level for some opportunities, but they will have most of the portfolio in a risk profile that they're overall happy with growing over time. 
So there's a bit of a compartmentalization of risk and operating business, an overall portfolio, some capital requirements, and then there can be some uh, real risk-taking money at the edges as well. So what you've really described there is a, a total change in portfolio mo- modeling and the assumptions that traditionally we would use in finance. Well, you can't really put it all together in one bucket, no. And you know, the other aspect is, is that you know, mean variance assumes that there's normal distributions, that those distributions are, are going to be the same over time. Whereas you know, we know that there are market shocks and on, on average, you know, they're happen, happening more than once every 10 years is probably on average something that's going to disrupt your portfolio at least once every three years or so. So how does that change? And then how do you frame how to tactically play that? You don't want to be following market narratives. You want to have a disciplined framework to decide when to tilt and um, how much to tilt. How do you then think about the the type of environment? You mentioned very early on in this conversation around the market structure changing. And alongside that, we're seeing some pretty high spikes in volatilities across all asset classes at particular times. How do you think the investors need to take advantage of these types of environments that we're in or maybe hedge themselves against uh, these types of spikes in volatility? They can be grouped in terms of regimes as well. So, you know, volatilities tended to be in either a, you know, a really disruptive sort of episode and very, very high, say the VIX, for example, if it's you know, well above 30, then that's an environment where it's just not safe to invest and, and just, you know, wait until things wash over. At the other extreme, two years ago, you had the VIX falling to record low levels. So below 10 on a few occasions, but anything below 15, it's like anyone can make money pretty much just buy and pretty much every sector will be going up. So that doesn't really matter. Where it's really interesting is in the mid-range where the volatility allows the opportunity to enter and exit sectors and stocks and um, investments where the behavioral forces are driving them. So we know that people tend to chase they tend to be buying at the top of the price range. And if there's a chop in markets and, and that mid-range of volatility, um, this, it gets quite choppy. And you can play with a lot more conviction on the top of a volatility range or the bottom of a volatility range and um, be in and out based on, on those sort of moves. So that's sort of one way to play it, which you know, can be quite successful if, if you get the parameters of those particular moves right and um, you know, has worked reasonably well in uh, recent years. I'm curious then, you know, given, given all the different assumptions that you use as part of your portfolio construction, typically a, a 60-40 portfolio is employed, but what you've really described with these really non-normality that, that pops up in the portfolio and some really large asymmetric returns, how has your portfolio construction actually changed? Yeah, well, it will include a lot less traditional fixed income, and I mean public market fixed income. So where the returns are very, very low and the current yields are very low, if you're lucky, you'll get a you know, one to one and a half percent yield on corporate bonds in Australia if you invest in the index. And the volatility around that's quite high. So you've got more risk for less return. And that's not really what you had 20 years ago, 10 years ago, or even five years ago. So how you construct a portfolio now should contain less of traditional fixed income and you look for other defensive assets and they can be private markets fixed income. They can be other things like inflation hedging assets and and some commodity strategies as well. Things that a good way to think of of it would be the anti-fragile sort of assets. 
And I put green energy in that area as well, because that's performed really well, given a lot of it's still part of Tesla. But you've got these asset classes that have performed better in this environment, but many of those asset classes are going to shift again. And uh, in the next five years, uh, they may be a different group. So I'm really curious around the defensive assets that that make up. Okay, you've given me a, a 40%, I guess, of the balance fund and looking at, for example, private uh, credit. Is that really enough in terms of any real shock that hits the system? Would that be enough you know, s- support to actually help the fund uh, or the portfolio in, in times of crisis? Or do we really no- need to look for something else, some sort of long vol strategies, some other market neutral, some um, hedging? Yeah, I think you do, because most asset classes will have a short volatility characteristic that is, you know, they're not going to be performing as well in a um, you know, market shock sort of environment. So long volatility strategies that are you know, out of the money options, that are just other asset classes that perform better in those shock environments are another aspect in the in the portfolio that really should be there, because most other asset classes are short volatility. So there's many different ways of playing that. They can be by formulaic tail hedging strategies, but you've got to be in those asset classes and you've got to harvest the gains when those shocks happen. So it's not enough just to have it. You've got to have a very disciplined process of monetizing that and whoever's doing that for you has that process and a demonstrated ability to do that. Or you can have a broad strategy that's just a collection of mispriced by volatility opportunities where that insurance is bought really, really cheap. And they could be in CDS index strategies, just out of the money option strategies in many different asset classes. Or they could be just asset classes that are just really poorly valued because they've just not been popular. An example is transport and shipping. So, you know, the shipping industry has performed amazingly well over the last year, and you wouldn't have thought that necessarily. So that's just one niche asset class that has had some of that protection effect, but it's a very cyclical industry as well. So you need to have a combination of these things and have a portfolio of long volatility strategies. I find it really interesting in terms of the way you think about thematics building up the portfolio. Is that the same way that a traditional investor really should think about their portfolio construction rather than specific factors that are out there and specific beta exposures that they're looking to? Really, the types of themes that they think are evolving through the market that they can they can ride on. Is that fair to say? Well, I think for multi-generation portfolios, you do need to look at that. You need to look at the long-term secular trends. And many of those things are in technology, but they're also in you know, the change of energy, the change of communications networks, the change of transport. And when you've seen industrial revolutions, you know, the steam power to the oil, and, and now we've got newer wave of industrial revolution, and those are multi-decade trends. So I think looking at the thematics of that is really, really important because that's what's going to drive the the wealth creation. I think the biggest fault that most of us have in assuming that we will always get a particular return from from an asset class that we deserve to have an equity risk premium because it was always there. It's not necessarily valid. There's got to be some sort of economic wealth creation uh, in that. And if there's not, then uh, don't expect you to just get something that was always there before. So it needs to be driven by long-term wealth creation. And that's driven by these long-term secular trends. I'm curious around, as you're thinking about portfolios for the 
the regular folk, you know, how many of, of the types of strategies that you're talking about are available for a, tra- a, you know, a traditional investor that doesn't have the institutional background? Are there particular ways that uh, an investor can capture most of these trends, whether it's through passive or some other active funds? How do you go about building that portfolio for them or at least taking into consideration these particular risks? Yeah, unsurprisingly, they are incredibly accessible, mostly through the rise of ETFs and um, active ETFs, thematic ETFs. Uh, You want to invest in the green revolution. There's a whole bunch of ETFs to do that. You want to invest in carbon credits. There's a couple of ETFs I know for that. Pretty much everything you can think of, there is something and it's been translated to an ETF. Outside of that, there's a lot of good work that's being done to take some of the best work in um, institutional investment and uh, port it into a a wealth management environment. So breaking down an investment that might have a $10 million minimum and making it available to investors for maybe $10,000 minimum investment. So it is available. The starting point are ETFs and some of the thematic ETFs and file ETFs. There's many different ones to to choose there. And there's some great websites, you know, um, ETF.com and other ones where you can just go and search for a particular thematic or idea that you want and construct it with ETFs. Is there anything that you think that hasn't actually come through today in terms of something that's still very much an institutionalized uh, approach or or strategy that, that isn't available on the retail front yet? I think one of the areas is private debt. So that's starting to come through. The other area is private equity and venture capital. So both things from the private markets where by their nature, they're not listed. And there's some effort to generate some listed variants of those exchange traded funds or listed investment companies that do that, or just breaking it down into more manageable sizes and making it available. One of the biggest problems is capital calls. So how do you deal with that? And it's way too difficult to deal with capital calls across investors that have $10,000 minimums. So you need to be able to create products that are fully capital drawn and has a a liquid component that will fund those capital calls. So you don't want it sitting in cash. You want it in something that's going to be reflecting that asset class to a degree. So today you're acting as an independent consultant. What specifically are are you working on at the moment? What are the key issues that are coming up as you're working with various clients? Well, on on some of those issues, so where there's products and um, ideas that can be ported from the institutional world into the uh, wealth management world, um, those are the things that are really exciting me and they're becoming available. So I I see that my mum and dad live in New Zealand and they're retirees. I see that there's a private debt product that started up in New Zealand in the the last few months. So that's great because uh, there's a strategy that target 3% plus in term deposit rates there. You're lucky if you get 1.5% locking up for five years. So as a retiree, that's really, really good for them. And I'm excited about being able to find products like that that will help my mum and dad and help, you know, help people on in Australia as well who you know, can access these things through their financial advisor or be self-directed if they can try and find these things. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Graham. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.